So I'd like to begin this talk tonight by a poem, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Happiness is a butterfly, which when pursued is always beyond our grasp. But if you will sit down quietly, it may alight upon you. So tonight the talk is about the fulfillment of this pursuit of happiness that we're all involved in as human beings. It's an important subject because happiness in our lives, and especially if we recognize a happiness that has come from our practice here these past days, it provides us with a sense of energy. Can you hear me? Is that okay? All right. Um, energy, lightheartedness, a sense of well-being, a really deep sense of well-being. And so this is a boon to our practice in life and practice on the cushion. It can bring us to a place of balance, what with all the suffering of our hearts and our minds and suffering in our lives outside of our hearts and minds and those around us in the world. To bring our attention to happiness is something that brings a great balance to us. So it's not substantially about the happiness of getting or acquiring things. Although, of course, as lay people as, and as human beings, we know that having things uh, comfortable in our lives, our little creature comforts do give us a sense of happiness, and it's not about relinquishing all of that. It's about appreciating. It's about letting go and knowing how to do that, making a practice of doing that. It's not uh, being weighed down by our things nor being weighed down by ignorance by not seeing clearly the way things are. So tonight I want to talk about some of the kinds of happinesses that we can rejoice in, that we've all participated in here, and that if we put our uh, minds to, we may realize this more deeply, and so that happiness may sink more deeply into our hearts. So the various happinesses that I'd like to speak about are gratitude, generosity, the happiness of virtuous activity or living in harmony, the happiness of uh, the concentrated mind, the secluded mind, the happiness of wisdom, wisdom of protecting our hearts and minds from wrong view, or protecting it from ignorance. So the Buddha said there are two kinds of remarkably rare and precious human beings on this earth. And those two kinds of human beings are those who are generous and those who are grateful. These two kinds of human beings. So I want to put more emphasis this evening on the happiness that comes from gratitude. 
Gratitude-like generosity dissolves that sense of separate self. When we feel grateful, there's a deep, wise understanding that arises in the hearts that our lives depend on the lives of others, that we wouldn't be here today if it were not for the countless acts of kindness that have been bestowed upon us. And with our lives the way they are in this um, constant looking for something that's going to give us more and more happiness, which is, I'm not saying that that's wrong, but I think in my own life I don't give enough time for looking at what has given me, uh, kind, what has been offered to me in kindness and care and love, and reflecting on that, bringing a sense of the completion of acknowledgement and the gratitude that comes from that. In recent years, I've been um, connected to some studies that have been coming out on calming the mind, studies that have been, uh, research that has been brought out about compassion, the results of the practice of compassion, other meditative experiences. And most recently, in the last few years, there was uh, a news release and then several after that about the attitude of gratitude and its beneficial effects on our health, our bodily health and well-being, and our mental health and well-being. It's said that in those moments when we're mindful of the feeling of gratitude, there's a deep sense of relaxation that gives rise to a quiet kind of happiness. So I was putting this to practice uh, not so long ago, and I was putting away some pictures of my mother. Uh, They were up on the kind of the altar that I have right in our dining room, several, a few kinds of places in the house where, where we look to one area, we can feel gratitude or protected by the Buddha, protected by uh, various teachers that we've had, various elders. And in this particular place, it was about my mother. And uh, this past March was a year of the anniversary of her death. So I was changing the pictures around, putting some away, and I took two pictures out, put them in one hand, another in another hand, and saw how she was when she was much younger. And then that was in my left hand. My right hand was her picture just before she passed away about a couple of months before she passed away. And so I just took time to be there with it, to just look at her pictures and to allow that reflection on my gratitude for having a mother, and particularly a good mother. I I know that not everyone is blessed with that. And so 
just looking at her eyes, how bright they were on the left side and just how the folds of her eyes had um, covered a lot of the vision of her eyes in, on the right side, that picture there. And what her eyes must have seen in her lifetime, all the compassion and wisdom that were developed in her lifetime. Just being able to share some of her simple knowledge with me. Just remembering some of those simple things that she taught me um, about being generous. She'd never let anybody go away from our house without something, even if we were poor. Came from a poor family and um, later on moved on from that. But um, I say that because somebody mentioned recently that, oh, you came from a very wealthy family and I thought, well, maybe I have to clarify that. I actually came from a very poor family and then married into a very wealthy family. From this poor family, I learned a lot about giving, giving even when you think you didn't have anything. And so just the little things of how my mother would give away a cup of rice and um, how she would always give some time to anybody who came to visit us. And so there was this natural, spontaneous feeling of gratitude, wave of gratitude that came in my heart. And just allowing myself to be with it. You know, we can let those moments pass by because we're busy, because the telephone's ringing, or because someone needs us, um, or we think someone needs us or something else, we have to check out our email. Or I mean, those were all on my mind. It really takes time to practice gratitude, to just be with it for a moment. Steve has mentioned a couple of times how uh, noticing those wholesome states of mind are actually a way to encourage them, enhance them, deepen them in our mind stream. So I just take more time to um, let this idea drop into your mind, to take time when a wave of gratitude comes, and to really feel it, to acknowledge it, to keep the reflection going on it that brings about that gratitude. So I remembered when I was looking at the picture of my mother that in the Tibetan teachings there, were, there are four most precious opportunities that we can reflect on that can bring us joy. And the first one is being born as a human being. The second one, by the way, is hearing the Dharma. The third is finding a teacher to help awaken us. And in our culture, we're so lucky by various means to have many teachers in the Dharma. Becoming awakened is the fourth most precious opportunity. And so just connecting that with my own mother and being born so feeling lucky that I had 
a channel to be born through and uh, some time of connection before she passed away with her. A long time of connection, almost 60 years. So essentially, we are privileged to have all of these opportunities to develop gratitude and therefore joy about being born human, all this time, these days together, hearing the Dharma, having various teachers, not just uh, now we're in front of you, but there are other times when other teachers are in front of you. Becoming awakened, which is what our path is. So being born as a human being, this is a precious opportunity in our busy and responsible lives, we don't have space enough to reflect on sometimes. I find myself getting in the snit of grumbling, of not appreciating, of complaining, of sometimes when there's something beautiful in front of me, just finding something wrong with it. And um, that's, that's a painful state to be in. I have, um, Steve and I have each other to remind each other that, you know, you've been complaining a lot lately. And so just waking me up once in a while to turn the mind towards what we can be grateful for. It's said that on this plane of existence, there is just enough pleasure and happiness and just enough pain and suffering to keep us interested in a path of awakening, awakening to the deeper truths of life. If there were predominantly pleasure in our life, we wouldn't tend to be interested in anything else. It's said, we don't know by remembering or by our firsthand experiential knowledge, but it is said that there are planes of existence, the deva realms or the celestial realms, where there is pleasure everywhere you look and can experience through all of the sense doors. And um, there are various of these realms. Manindra used to say to us, you may not believe it. It's true, but you may not believe it. He had a um, very deep conviction that this was so. And so... If it were predominantly pain, we would feel very hopeless. There wouldn't be enough energy, not enough interest in anything else but getting rid of the pain, trying to get out of the pain, or just enough interest to keep us going as we're suffering. And it's said, of course, that also there are realms of existence with predominantly a lot of pain. And so these we know as the hell realms. Sometimes, of course, we can feel temporarily in a hell realm, even in this human realm. We can feel the opposite also. Times of great pleasure, um, maybe they don't last long. But it can feel like we're in a heaven realm for a little while. Just this afternoon when we went home and it was just cool enough and that there was a lovely breeze and... 
my mind wasn't rattled by anything, and I could just sit down and look out the window and enjoy that passing moment, little moment of a heaven realm. It's said that actually the pain of life gives rise to seeking out relief, this pain of the human realm where there's just enough pleasure, just enough pain, that we can uh, not be so overcome by either one, that we seek something deeper. We can even have room to have a thought that maybe there's something beyond this pleasure and pain. So about being born human, in the teachings it is said that the chances of being born into the human realm are quite precious and rare. And the odds are like this. Suppose there were a blind turtle swimming in waters as vast as the seven seas that we know in, on this earth. And imagine that somewhere floating upon that vast expanse of water was a yoke or a hoop. In that water lived a very rare turtle that needed to come up for air only every 100 years. So imagine that that turtle came up for air every 100 years and on this vast expanse of water lay that hoop and that turtle came up through that hoop. The chances of that are very, very rare. And it is said in the teachings that those are the chances that we have of being born human. Very, very precious experience. I think that we realize this a lot when someone is in danger, when their health is in danger, when their life is in danger. And I find myself always saying that to myself when someone presents me with a situation that um, they have some health concern going or that they may be near death. And all of a sudden, in a greater way, it dawns on me once again how precious life is. And for a while, I begin to treat life around me with that kind of precious interest. And then it gets busy again, and, you know, it goes, it, that goes away, that kind of precious interest in life. So the simple fact of our being born human can bring us a lot of gratitude if we really look at the preciousness of that. So I found on the web an experiment that was done by the University of Miami Psychology Department in the year 2003. And it was about counting one's blessings instead of one's burdens. The experiment was about the effect of a grateful outlook on life, which brought about mental and physical well-being. So here are the facts about it. The participants were randomly assigned to one of three groups, and one group was assigned to reflect on daily 
all of their hassles and all of the burdens in their life and, you know, what they were grumbling about and just to see kind of like the glass is half full instead of half empty. I think sometimes that's uh, easy to do. That's the natural default setting. And then the second group were asked to reflect on what they could be grateful for. And if they were feeling otherwise, to turn the mind to what they were grateful for, to the health that they had at the moment, to the ability to have loved ones around, to eat. I mean, sometimes it really just amazes me that we can eat in our culture We can eat almost anything we want at any time if we live in a community that has strip malls, you know. We can just choose anything we want, any day, any kind of ethnic food. And um, a lot of gratitude for that, especially if you've been to third world countries and you see what happens there. So the second group, reflecting on gratitude all the time. And the third group, reflecting on just the neutral life events. So really turning their mind to that over and over again, like we do with the equanimity practice, turning the mind to that over and over again. So they kept weekly records of their moods, of their what was happening to their health, their coping behaviors, their overall life experiences, their appraisals of themselves, of things around them. And it was found that the Gratitude Outlook group exhibited heightened well-being across their, in their physicalness, physical body, in their mental body. So it wasn't just a little, and I know it, it was quantified in this study, but basically what I got from it was that heightened well-being. So the results of this suggested that a conscious focus on our blessings, on gratitude for the blessings that we have in life, may have emotional health and interpersonal benefits to us. Uplifts the mind and heart, brings us a kind of happiness, a kind of uh, joy in the mind. doesn't mean that we're laughing about it, but you know that joy in the mind that is so deep that it goes inward. It doesn't go outward like we're laughing at a joke, but it goes inward and it, it has ripples on our body, in our minds. Sometimes the poets point the way to gratitude more than scientists who can demonstrate the benefit. So one of these poems is... Uh, Poets is Jane Kenyon. She understood and very uh, much lived in appreciation, in a heart of appreciation, it said. Much of her life, until she died of leukemia in 1998, she suffered from bipolar and uh, depression. So this is her poem called Otherwise that reflects her wisdom in appreciating and giving thanks for the ordinariness of life that we take for granted sometimes. So the name of this poem is Otherwise. I got out of bed 
on two strong legs, it might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day, I know it will be otherwise. So gratitude, bringing us a sense of well-being, that very quiet happiness that we have in our hearts. In the Dhamma, it is said that just as physical beauty is to the body, the beauty of gratitude is to the mind. And it shines through old age, sickness. So that's gratitude. And the second kind of happiness that we can generate, that we can develop, is a happiness that comes from giving, from generosity. So I talked a lot about it this afternoon. And I want to focus specifically now on how the practice of generosity is completely surrounded by happiness. Because if you become mindful at the moment you make an intention or have an idea to give something, and you bring that careful attention to your mind and to your heart, you will see that accompanying that attention, intention to give is also some moments of happiness and some moments of a sense of well-being because of that interconnectedness that comes with giving. And then if you notice carefully at the time of giving, that's why it's such a uh, formal act of uh, practice sometimes, at the time of giving, checking out your heart and mind and noticing what's there when you're giving. Uh, Not just this letting go, this generosity, but there's a lot of happiness to be able to give a gift You see the happiness on the face of another. You have sympathetic joy for them. You have joy in your own heart because of the letting go. And also afterwards, you remember an act of generosity. When we do the metta practice at the beginning of metta, it's said to reflect on some of your wholesome qualities of mind, Reflect on your goodness. And mostly what comes up for me are simple acts of giving. It might even be just smiling at someone. It might be opening a door or letting someone else go before me. And as I'm there waiting, when somebody else goes before me, I notice how happy I am just to be able to do that. 
So before, during, and after this act of giving, any act of giving, completely surrounded by happiness, when we really take a look very deeply. And it doesn't matter what we're giving. could be the needle. It could be you know, something very small. I remember in my last visit to Burma, um, I have a friend there who's a nun, and she practices at the monastery that I have gone to. Her name is Kamala, too. We call her Ma Kamala. And um, in the beginning, when I went to practice, I knew that there were certain things that I was going to give her. My umbrella and uh, some cloth, also some medicines, because she's actually a medical doctor that's become a nun for life. And I wanted to give her, I bring a lot of medicines for people around me or if something happens to me that I need, and then give them to her. And some various other things, but it wasn't a very big deal. So during my retreat, I would be holding the umbrella or seeing the things that I was going to give her. And then I would remember, oh, I'm going to give this to her later. And it would make me so happy during my whole retreat, just giving that, uh, having that thought of giving something to her. And so came the time that the retreat ended, and uh, I made an appointment with her to, to have that kind of formal time of giving from one hand to another, from one smile to another. So we made a time to meet, And we went uh, together into a room where we could be by ourselves. And so I faced her and took the things in my hand, the few things, and I said, Kamala, I have something, some things to offer you. And she looked me very serenely and directly in my eyes. And I really remember that vividly the happiness with which she received the gifts, I sensed that that happiness was not because she was getting the gifts, but because she was happy that I could give, that I could practice generosity. And um, to someone who's dedicating her whole life to the Dharma and to giving of the Dharma herself, and actually dedicating her life to liberation. And so when I offered the gift with two hands, I said, this is very small, but it's offered with all my heart. And she said, Kamala, Chaitana, or the intention, is not small. Intention, she said in Pali, Chaitana is not small. And it really, just really hit me how, you know, when the other man told me about the needle and all the little acts of generosity that we perform in our lives that we may not even be taking notice of. And the acts of generosity that others are uh, doing that we may not be taking notice of. All of this are 
cause and condition for happiness to arise in our own hearts. So generosity can be completely surrounded by happiness if we really, really pay attention. And that's what our practice is all about, paying attention. So just on a on another level, hearing more and more about the carbon footprint that we all make on this earth by the use of fossil fuels and uh, the cars and the flying that we do. Steve and I do a lot of flying in order in airplanes to get to where we're going to offer the Dharma. Um, my grandson recently asked me if I lived at the airport because he's, you know, he's always picking me up and dropping me off there when I go visit him, when I'm teaching around Portland with Steve. So I was really happy to, to know that the planting of trees is a counteraction to uh, that kind of carbon footprint that we are involved in because of living because trees um, take up some of that carbon dioxide. And it says that so many trees that are planted take up so, so much of that kind of toxin that goes into the air that's affecting our environment and, you know, one thing affecting another. So one act of generosity that Steve and I have done, along with members of our community on Maui, that make us happy, and a lot, before we did it, during the time that we did it, and now that we think about it, is we planted a lot of trees. We planted over 300 trees that are endemic to Hawaii, the koa tree, and um, many other trees, uh, about a thousand all in all, on our land there which actually doesn't belong to us. It belongs to um, this nonprofit that we've set up for the Dharma. So something we can do to make us happy, not just uh, that's not giving some kind of safety and beauty and also um, loving kindness to ourselves, the generation that we're living in, but generations we may not even see that we'll uh, be happy about those trees being there. So I mentioned earlier that um, some psychologists, maybe I didn't mention the fact that some psychologists found that feeling good from craving and getting what we want from that craving. It's not to say that this feeling good is bad, but that feeling good by way of craving and getting what we want from craving only produces or habituates more hunger for that kind of pleasure to arise. So this is what the psychologists call the hedonic treadmill. You know, just going just chasing after what we want because it's, we think that it's going to bring us pleasure. But also found 
that doing good, not just feeling good, wasn't about feeling good, doing good produces happiness, a very deep kind of happiness, not pleasure, the pleasure that gets habituated to look for more and more pleasure, but produces a sense of well-being, a deep kind of happiness. So as we, the body no longer has the physical luster that it used to have as we grow older, generosity and gratitude shine. They become that luster, more durable than physical beauty. One more story about generosity. We have a friend. He used to actually work here and live here And he was so generous, he didn't have very much material wealth, but what he'd do is he'd give his uh, bone marrow, and recently he gave a kidney to someone. And those were his acts of generosity. So he gave bone marrow one time, the first time, and it was very painful for him afterwards. He had a lot of fever, and the body goes through a lot of pain giving bone marrow, I I understand. And so then came the second time that he decided to give bone marrow. And I was sitting with him just outside under the trees there where the staff and uh, where we go sometimes. And I said, why did you... It, It was so painful the first time. Why did you give again? That's really interesting to me that, you know... Sometimes when it's painful, you don't want to do it again. And he said, you know what, Kamala? The happiness is greater than the pain. The happiness to give was greater than the pain that he had to endure. So giving away our greed, bringing much happiness to us, this is generosity. brings us a sense of well-being. So that's the well-being, the happiness from gratitude, from generosity. And then there is the well-being and happiness that comes from living in harmony, which causes a condition of inner peace, of a kind of settledness. Actively being aware of the universal practice of non-harming. We've been taking the precepts every day. Though I'm not here, I take the precepts myself every day. The precepts to refrain from killing, stealing, not lying, from uh, not taking something that will cloud the mind, from sexual misconduct, any kind of activity there that will harm another directly or indirectly. When we do that, we notice the heart and mind that's free from guilt free from even the need for remorse to arise. Remorse is a good thing because, I think as Steve talked about earlier, we can reflect on maybe something that we've said or done that has harmed another. But when we even refrain from doing anything harmful, remorse doesn't even have to come up. That happiness of non-remorse that we don't even have to feel that at all. 
don't even have to look back on anything that we might have harmed. It's said that there are two qualities within each one of us that are actually the guardians of the world. And they are, uh, in Pali, hiri and otapa, respect for others, respect for oneself. Steve uh, talked about this, so I won't go over it too much, but it's really uh, reflecting on how will this action and this speech affect my own karmic stream. Like when I speak this way, it will cause agitation later in the mind. Or if I act this way, it will cause agitation in the mind. How will it affect others? So this is respect for others. So we constantly have these guardians reminding us, um, asking us to, to look very carefully what is our intention It gives a gift of safety when we are in tune with this. It's safety to those around us. They can really depend and rely on the fact that we will do the best we can to be respectful. And when it is that way for ourselves and those around us, a lot of happiness can come in our hearts. The happiness again of well-being of not being afraid that others will uh, blame us. So we give ourselves that gift as well. This is from the teachings of Dzogchen. It doesn't say who in particular wrote it. The heart and essence of the great perfection. Now in our day-to-day lives, we know that the more stable, calm, and contented our mind is, the more feelings and experiences of happiness we will derive from it. The more undisciplined, untrained, and negative our mind is, the more we suffer mentally and physically as well. So we can see only too well that a disciplined and contented mind is a source of our happiness. So that's gratitude, generosity, and this respect for oneself and others. And there's a fourth kind of happiness that we're developing in our training here. And we can develop outside of here, too, even in our homes. It's about the happiness from a mind that is trained to be temporarily free from the hindrances. And this is the seclusion of mind that we experience from the continuity of awareness. We can experience seclusion of mind from uh, bringing, putting concentration on one object and being with that object over and over again. The kind of seclusion uh, from the hindrances that we're developing here in Vipassana is we're bringing mindfulness to changing objects and the continuity of that produces a kind of seclusion of mind. It creates a force field that keeps the hindrances at bay. And so when the hindrances aren't there, it can't come in this force field, there's a kind of lightness of mind, a kind of um, freedom from the agitation of restlessness, of doubt, of aversion, 
the agitation of the wanting mind. And there's even a term for it, happy comfort of body and mind that we begin to feel. Some of you may have had moments of this. Somebody mentioned with great happiness, actually, not being weighed down by a mind that was constantly talking. We feel, experience, we sense that the words that come into the mind are only the words that are necessary. The constant commenting is outside of that force field because of the continuity of mindfulness, even on changing objects, even when they're quickly changing. So from there, there's a joy and a confidence that arise, a deeper faith from the continuity of mindfulness. And it's said that this joy arises because the mind is happy that it's doing its work unhindered because of the uh, absence of the hindrances. So later, that kind of power can turn to the defilements, can open to the defilements. When the defilements become really, really strong, the, um, the, that power of the concentrated mind actually turn to the defilements and begin to see them as they really are. Wisdom arises, and wisdom sees them as they really are. Visitors to the mind seeing the impermanent nature of everything that arises and passes away, even the defilements. This is the joy of wisdom developing, the joy of seeing the Dhamma. And it's not just seeing the impermanent nature of all phenomena, especially the defilements, but it's seeing in that impermanent nature that everything is evanescent, everything is insubstantial, there's nothing solid anywhere. Just see things just arise and pass away, moment to moment to moment, like a cloud, uh, like a lump of foam that has nothing really in it. There's no core, there's nothing solid inside, there's nothing solid outside, There's nothing solid connecting the inside or outside. It's just all arising and passing away insubstantially. Various conditions coming together momentarily and forming a sense of self, not something solid that we can put our finger on that will last forever, but what is called a useful fabrication for this level of uh, relational, conventional experience in this relative world. The understanding of dukkha, the truth of dukkha, becomes known uh, in its very bare attention manner, without overlaying any concepts on it, without trying to make excuses for it, without running away, without saying, uh, no, I'd rather rest in, you know, peace. But just really facing it with an equanimous, peaceful mind, understanding the truth of dukkha at the deepest levels, 
the levels that see even dukkha as impermanent, insubstantial, non-self. And so happiness is the living in alignment with this truth that all conditioned things arise and pass away. And seeing this very, very clearly brings the greatest happiness, which is peace. I think you've all been chanting that in the evening. So it's this purifying of wrong view, of the wrong view of seeing things that are impermanent as permanent, the wrong view of seeing things that are uh, not self as self, and seeing rightly the truth of dukkha. When I was practicing this past May at the Forest Refuge with uh, Utejaniya, there was the instruction to turn the mind over and over again to the defilements, to the contents, to the way that the defilements affected the mind. And so I followed this instruction like I was asked to. And I thought, wow, turning the mind over and over again to the defilements, that's an interesting practice. And over and over again, the ability to see every defilement very clearly and powerfully as impermanent, as not-self, as unsatisfactory, even if it was pleasant, uh, when pleasant moments arise, not the defilements, but when pleasant experience arise, seeing even that as unsatisfactory. Very powerful training for the mind. And there was a lot of even turning the mind to the defilements over and over again, there was a lot of happiness arising. So I asked Seda Utejaniya, what is this? Why is there a lot of happiness facing the defilements over and over and over again? And he said, you know, the mind is very happy when it's learning. When, when it's learning something new. And I imagine that you have felt that in your own ways finally getting enough power of the mind to see the defilements without succumbing to them, without saying, this is me, this is mine, this is who I am, but really seeing them clearly. The mind gets happy about that. And as was stated earlier, the mind is doing its work in an unhindered way. So there's a lightness that can come, a strength that can come, a great confidence that can come, a very deep happiness because of living in alignment with the truth of how things are. It's said that when there is freedom from these deep tendencies of greed, hatred, and delusion, when the mind has the ability to uh, see all of this with wisdom, it gets closer and closer to the unconditioned and is able to what is called leap into the unconditioned. That is a state of mind beyond uh, this level of relativity. You can't even call it a state. You can't even call it mind because it's beyond all of that. 
hard to describe. A lot of happiness, it said, can arise from that experience. It said that when the mind is pure, joy follows like a shadow that never leaves. So these are the kinds of happinesses that we have been nourishing here, developing here. Gratitude, which this is a time when there can be very naturally a lot of gratitude in your hearts. Generosity, harmonious living, seclusion from the hindrances, purifying the mind of wrong views, which is developing wisdom. So these kinds of happinesses are part of our life here together and can be carried home with us. These are the kinds of happinesses that we don't generally chase after in our lives. So I'd like to end with um, the Maha Mangala Sutta, very important teaching from the Buddha. Mangala means blessings. Maha means high or the highest blessings. So I'd just like to read the, the whole thing. It's very um, beautiful to me. It said that many beings came to hear the teachings. Animals came to hear the teachings. Even beings from other realms of existence came to hear the teachings. And so it said, Thus have I heard, once the Buddha was dwelling near Savati in the Jetta Grove at Anapindika's monastery. Then, as the night was passing away, a deity, or a celestial being, of surpassing radiance illuminated the entire Jetta Grove, came to the presence of the Blessed One, and drawing near, respectfully saluted and stood at one side. Standing thus, the deity addressed the Blessed One with a verse, Many devas and human beings wishing for well-being, yearning after good, have pondered on blessings. Pray, tell me the supreme blessing. And the Blessed One responded, Not to follow or associate with fools, to associate with the wise, and honor those who are worthy of honor. This is the highest blessing. To reside in a suitable locality, to have done meritorious actions in the past, and to set oneself on the right course towards liberation. This is the highest blessing. Education, craft, a well-trained discipline, a well and well-trained in wise speech. This is the highest blessing. Edu- the support of father and mother, the cherishing of partner and children, and a peaceful occupation. This is the highest blessing. Generosity, wise conduct, helping relatives, blameless actions. These are the highest blessings. Ceasing and abstaining from the unwholesome, restraint with respect to intoxicants, steadfastness in virtue. This is the highest blessing. Reverence, humility, contentment, gratitude, and the timely hearing of the Dhamma. 
This is the highest blessing. Patience, the willingness to be corrected, association with exemplars of the Dhamma life, and discussion of the Dhamma at the right time. This is the highest blessing. Self-control, perception of the noble truths, and the realization of Nibbana. This is the highest blessing. When one's mind is not taken, shaken, when affected by the worldly vicissitudes, sorrowless, stainless, and secure, this is the highest blessing. Those fulfilling matters such as these are everywhere unconquered. They go everywhere in safety, in every way, moving happily. To them, these are the highest blessings. So let's sit for a moment. Those fulfilling matters such as these are everywhere unconquered. They go everywhere in safety, in every way moving happily. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.